If you would please take your Bibles and open to 1st John chapter 1. 1st John chapter 1. We'll be looking at 1st John chapter 1 verse 5 to verse number 2 of chapter 2. Let me read through it, and, and then we will look at it. So 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all, from every sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Last week we began looking at the epistle we call 1 John. As we saw last Sunday, um, it appears to match the Gospel of John. In fact, in doing some more reading this week, there are some people who wonder if in fact this was not written before the Gospel of John, and that the Gospel of John is sort of an expansion On what we find here, we have a prologue, which we looked at last week, the first four verses. And then the Gospel of John and 1 John have two main parts. And then you have an epilogue at the end. This letter is pastoral. Uh, Thirteen times James refers to the readers as children, my dear children. Very affectionate, and he is their pastor, and he is writing to them in that way. But it's also polemical. That is, he in fact is writing against false teachers, false teachers that he refers to as false prophets, deceivers, and antichrist. The error of these false teachers, as we will see as we go along, is both theological as well as ethical. The theological, I think we can relate to, or we can understand more easily, in chapter 2, verse 22, who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. Their heresy was what we would call Christological. It had to deal with the person of Jesus Christ. Their teachings with regard to Jesus are, in fact, quite wrong. But you know what? When people have false teaching, it shows up in their behavior. And their behavior is marked by lovelessness. They don't have love for those that are supposed to be their brothers and sisters. So as we will see as we go through this series, there are three marks, three marks of a Christian. Belief in Jesus as Christ come in the flesh, obedience to the commandments of God, and then thirdly, brotherly love. Last week we saw that the prologue is can be seen as five stages that come full circle. It begins with Jesus living or existing before the beginning. Uh, That which was from the beginning. So he is in eternity past. Before there was time. Time is something God created. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, was there. 
But then the second part, the second stage, is he appeared in history. If you look at verse number one, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life, the life appeared, that is, Jesus came, he appeared, we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. God the Son came into human history, came out of eternity, if you wish, into time, into human history. And thirdly, why did he come? Well, the good news and the apostles are to proclaim it. Verse number three, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. And why do they proclaim? This is the fourth stage, fellowship. Verse number three, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. That is, the message is not the end in itself. It is so that people will, in fact, become the children of God and enter into fellowship with one another. But there is also an ultimate purpose. There's an immediate purpose that people would be saved. They would become a part of the people of God. But the ultimate purpose is the fifth stage, and we come full circle, that their joy would be complete. We have joy in this life because of the Lord Jesus. But I would argue that joy will not be complete until Jesus returns. We leave time, and we will be with him for eternity, and then our joy will be complete. That's the introduction. That's the prologue. Now we turn to the letter proper. There should be a connection, shouldn't there, between the introduction and the letter proper? And there is. And what is that connection? In verse number five, it is the message. The message. We don't find that word in the first four verses, but we do hear about them proclaiming. We proclaim concerning the word of life. We proclaim to you in verse three. And in verse number five, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. So it's a proclaiming of a specific message. And what is the message? What is it that the apostles have been proclaiming? God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. By the way, we hear this in the prologue to the Gospel of John. Let me read to you the first four verses, the first five verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness does not, or has not over, uh, understood it, or in some translations has not overcome it. Here in First John we are told that God is light. This is the message. It is the most comprehensive statement regarding the nature of God. See, light reveals... And God reveals himself to us. God is light. Now consider light and darkness. This is not something unique to the Christian faith. You find it throughout various world religions. Um, The idea of light being good, darkness being bad. In some there's a twist where darkness is considered good and light is seen as dangerous. But in scripture... We find light used in one of two ways. Either light is used to speak intellectually of truth, that light is truth. Darkness, on the other hand, is ignorance or being in error. That's one way. But the other way is in terms of how we live, our morality. Light is purity. 
and darkness is evil. Light and truth are heard time and time again. Uh, let me just read you several passages. Simeon, when the Lord Jesus, when the baby Jesus, infant Jesus, is being brought to the temple for his consecration according to the law, there was a man there named Simeon who had been told by the Spirit, you will see the Messiah. He says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for the revelation, or for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And then in Acts 13, we have the first recorded sermon of Paul. It's not his first sermon, but it's the first time that a sermon is recorded. He had actually preached the previous Sabbath in the synagogue, and the next Sabbath, he is going to preach again in the synagogue. Uh, On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord commanded us. And he quotes from Isaiah 49. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, and you may, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. One more passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light, of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, I think this is a reference to Genesis 1-3, let there be light, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is normally what we think of when we think of light, uh, that it reveals, it gives you knowledge, it gives you information, um, You become enlightened. That would be the verb. That is, you come to know something that you did not know before. You have greater knowledge or understanding than you had before. But that's only one way in which light is used in Scripture. Ephesians 5. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. That is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Here, I think Paul is not speaking primarily of information or knowledge. Now you have greater insight. He's speaking of your actions. You used to be darkness. You used to do evil things. Now you are children of the light. You are supposed to live accordingly. In Romans 13, And do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. It's interesting. Both passages speak of waking up. Because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. In other words, stop doing the things that are wrong and do what is right. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, 
not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. and Do not think about how to gratify the desires of your sinful nature. So in these last two passages, we see this contrast between light and darkness in terms of behavior. To be in darkness is to do what is wrong, and to be in light is to do what is right. I said that the Gospel of John and 1 John have many similarities, and we see this with regard to light as well. Four times in the Gospel of John, we have passages with regard to light. The first one is in the prologue, in verse number 9, chapter 1. The true light that gives light to every man coming into the world. Then we have the story of the man um, in in chapter 8. Jesus speaks to the people and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then in chapter 12, one of his last public appearances, and Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. So there the idea through these passages is light is information. It's revelation. God tells us who he is. Um, but there is one other passage. I said there were four. I've read you three of them. There is one other passage. It's in John chapter 3, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than, or instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that we may, it may be plainly seen what he has done through God. Or what he has done has been done through God. In chapter 12, there was sort of a hint at the moral element, but here in John 3, it's explicit that darkness is the deeds that are wrong, and people prefer to be in darkness, they prefer to do that which is wrong, than to do that which is right. Oz Guinness, in his most recent book, has said that contrast is the mother of clarity. I think for us to better understand the light, we should think in terms of darkness. One who who does evil hates the light. It isn't light in terms of information. There is that aspect that when you go into the light, you're busted because now we know what you've done. And you begin to have a sense, you know, I shouldn't be doing those things. Those things are wrong. Uh, But darkness really points, I think, more to our actions than it does to a lack of information. You see, we are not simply to know the truth. We are to do the truth. We are not simply to see the light. We are to walk in the light. It isn't a matter of just sitting down and reading books and getting all this information in your head or coming to church and hearing a sermon. It is, in fact, it has to do with how we live. John is writing, in part, to answer false teachers who claim to have the light. In fact, they claim to have more light than other people. That's why they're teachers. I have been given insight. I have been enlightened. Let me tell you what is what. Um, Hasn't changed their behavior at all. In fact, if anything, their behavior has become worse. They don't seem to see the connection between what they 
say they believe and what they do. Between belief and behavior, between truth and ethics. It's not uncommon today, but in the first century, this is what John is writing against. People who see no connection between the two. In chapter 3, John says, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who, does, he who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. False teachers would say, no, I'm righteous because I have knowledge. I'm special. I'm enlightened. I'm higher than the rest of you yahoos here in church because I have this revelation. Um, no. So in our passage today, John refutes three false claims. You will notice that each one of them is introduced by the words, if we claim. If you look at verse number six, that's how it starts. Verse number eight, verse number ten. We don't know, by the way, if, if John is quoting these false teachers. Uh, but anyway, this is what they say. Okay? And then he will say, he will respond to them and say how they are wrong. So, the first false claim is that sin doesn't affect our, our relationship with God. Does not affect our relationship, our fellowship with God. You can, you can live like the devil if you wish. Um, that's okay. Verse number six. If we claim to have fellowship with him, that is with God, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Fellowship, as we saw last week, involves participation. We're not only to have fellowship with one another, sharing in the grace of God, sharing in the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit, we are also to have fellowship with God the Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus. But wait, if God is light, that's the message, and we are acting in darkness then how can there be a participation? How can there be fellowship? How can there be an intimate relationship between us and God if, in fact, we are living in darkness? And John says, this is a lie. You are lying. It's a deliberate, a conscious, a self-evident lie. If you are in darkness, you cannot have fellowship with light. You simply cannot. If you do, if you think you are, you are living a lie and you are not living by the truth. The New English Bible translates this last part, our words and our lives are a lie. Yeah. What you say you believe and how you live, it's a lie. You are lying to yourself. So John answers, verse number seven, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all or from every sin. John has spoken about the consequences of living in darkness. Now he describes what happens if you walk in the light. If you live in the light. God is light. God is eternally and necessarily the light. He himself is light. This is the message John wants them to hear. And we are called to walk in that light. We're made in the image of God, so shouldn't we be like God? If God is light and we're made in his image, then we should be in light as well. Well, because of sin, we are in darkness, but the Lord Jesus brings us into the light, and this is how we are supposed to live. And if we do that, 
If we walk in the light, if we obey him and do as he says, there are two consequences, two results. We have fellowship with one another. That is with other people who are walking in the light. I'm not the only person walking in the light. I'm not the only person whom God has saved. If we walk in the light, we will have fellowship, common cause with God, but we will with one another. The second result is that the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us, cleanses us from all or from every sin. The verb here is a present tense. It's a continuous action because the question may arise, and it has many times, if we are walking in the light, why do we have any sin? Why do our sins need to be cleansed? Well, it has been suggested, and I would agree, that if we walk in the light, one of the first results is we confess our sin. Because as we are walking, doing what God would have us to do, and as God reveals himself to us, guess what? We see our sins. Have you ever done this? You put on a shirt or something and it looks clean to you and then you go outside and then you see stains or marks or whatever that you did not see before. When we walk in the light, we see that we have sinned. And so we confess our sins. We don't say, oh, I don't have any sin. That's, that's a lie. We're, we're deceiving ourselves. We would say, yes, I have sinned. And we would say, that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The idea of blood forgiving sins or covering sins is very Old Testament. The whole sacrificial system. They would kill animals and shed their blood. But there's something else here. Oftentimes when we think of blood, blood is what sustains us. Um, In the Old Testament it says life is in the blood. Okay? You go to get your blood taken. It's a relatively painless procedure. You know, they stick a needle in. That's not what's spoken of here. It's not as though somehow God got a huge syringe and took the blood of Jesus and that's what forgives our sins. It speaks of blood that is taken violently. It speaks of a violent death. And certainly the degrading death of Jesus on the cross matches this. That Jesus gave his life that we might have life. That our sins would be forgiven. The second false claim of the false prophets is that sin does not exist in our nature. We are, we're not sinners by nature. Verse number eight. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In a sense, this is an extension of the first claim. Here, they claim that they have no sin at all. So why would they need to confess their sins? No need of the cleansing blood of Jesus. For the false teachers, whatever they did, whatever they did there that we would say was sin, they would say, actually, it's no, it's, we are not sinners because that's our body doing it. That's not us doing it. And John's like, you're kidding yourselves. It's self-deception. You are not enlightened as you imagine that you are. The truth is not present with you. So his answer is verse number nine. If we confess our sins, and of course we would because we're in the light, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The appropriate attitude for us to have towards sin is not to deny it, but to admit it. 
It is a part of our worship that we have the prayer of confession. We acknowledge that we have sinned. And when we do this, we can receive the forgiveness that God has made possible that he has promised. By the way, the word to confess means to agree with. Um, The way it is in Greek, we normally think of confess as uh, I'm guilty. I say, this is what I've done. But our service today began with the Apostles' Creed. We confess. This is what we say. And to confess in Scripture is to agree with God. God says, these are the things you shouldn't do. And if you do them, you've sinned. And when I confess my sin, I say, you know what, God? You're right. That To do that is wrong, and I did that. I admit that, and I agree with you, and therefore I confess to you that I have done these things. If we confess our sins, God will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And why would God do this? Because he is faithful and just. He is faithful to his nature. We know that God is faithful. Um, He's also faithful to his promises. In Jeremiah 31, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Okay, we get that part. God is faithful. Not a problem. But the just part, he is faithful and just. When I think of justice, I don't know about you, I think of punishment. Justice is when you get what you deserve. Well, if God is going to give me what I deserve, forgiveness is not on the menu. It's not what's going to happen to me. The answer, I think, comes in the next section. The third claim of the false prophets is that sin does not reveal itself in our conduct. If we claim, verse number 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Actually, it's an extension of the first two claims. To say that we have not sinned is not merely to tell a deliberate lie. If we say, if we lie and do not live by the truth, verse number six, it is to be deceived, verse number eight. But number three and verse number ten, it is to call God a liar. When we say we have not sinned, we call God a liar. Why? Because all throughout the scriptures we are told that we have all sinned. And if we say, no, I haven't, well, scripture is written by God through men, and God says, all have sinned. And if we say, nope, I have not sinned, then somebody's lying. Either I am lying or God is lying. And John says the false teachers, in essence, are saying, God has lied. Why else do you have the good news? If there isn't bad news, the bad news is we have sinned. That's what God says. And he sends his son to save us from our sins. John's answer is found in chapter two, the first two verses. And you will notice that there is a difference here in his answer. Because in verse number seven and verse number nine, he begins with if. Okay. Here he does not. He doesn't say, in verse number 7, if we walk in the light. Verse number 7, if we confess our sins. Um, I think at this point, John, as a pastor, is concerned that people will, as he's answering the false teachers, will misunderstand him and think, oh, so I can do whatever I want 
and confess my sins and God will forgive every sin. He will forgive all my sins. I can do whatever I want as long as I confess to God and then he will forgive my sins. John will have none of this. So verse number one, look at it. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Don't think, boy, it's sort of ollie ollie income free. I can do whatever I want because the blood of Jesus will wash it all away and I will be forgiven. By the way, when I read these verses, I'm reminded of at least two incidents in the Gospel of John. In chapter 5, the man at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus, after he heals him, says, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And then to the woman who was caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Do you remember the story? They bring this woman to Jesus caught in adultery. And what should we do with her? And Jesus says, He who is out sin casts the first stone. And they all leave because they're all guilty. And she is left there with Jesus. And Jesus says, where are your accusers? And she said, they're gone. And he says, go now and leave your life of sin. This idea of don't sin, stop your sinning, is something we find in the gospel. And now we hear it from John here in verse number one. I think any rational person at this point might begin to have a sense of the impossibility of this statement. Might in fact begin to feel overwhelmed. You don't want, you're telling me that I cannot sin, that I should not sin? Well, obviously we should not sin, but we know how broken we are. If we would be honest with ourselves, we know the tendency we have within ourselves to sin. And then when someone says, don't ever sin, well, that's, that's an impossible task. I mean, that's, that's not only a big ask, that's an impossible ask that you're putting on me, that you're telling me to not sin. If I could stop myself from sinning, what need would I have of the Lord Jesus? Okay, maybe to wash my sins, but you know, at a certain point I can stop sinning, so I don't need the blood of Jesus to help me anymore. Well, John isn't finished. Look at verse number one, where he says, My dear children, I write to you that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In the face of the command to stop sinning or to not sin, John presents the Lord Jesus in three ways. First of all, he is an advocate with the Father. He is one who speaks to the Father in our defense. By the way, the word that is used here is the same word we find in John 14, the Holy Spirit, I will send you another counselor. Well, Jesus is our advocate. He is our advocate before God. He is our, if you wish, defense attorney. And the way it is in Greek is he actually stands alongside us. And with the American court system, the defendant and you have the defense attorney standing right next to you. And John says, this is who Jesus is. You, you appear before God because you have sinned. You are guilty. And your defense attorney is right next to you pleading your case. By the way, who does this? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus in his human nature and Christ, his messianic office. He is the Messiah. 
So he is the defense attorney. Secondly, he is the righteous one. Um, Interestingly to me, at least, the same word translated as just, remember in verse number nine, faithful and just, and it's like, how, how can that be? Is translated here as righteous. So God is faithful and righteous. Jesus is the righteous or the just one. This will be fleshed out, though, in the coming weeks as we go through First John, because John has a lot to say about this. I would simply say at this point, only a righteous one can plead our cause with the Father. Because if we have somebody standing next to us who is guilty of sin like we are, um, they need an attorney. They need a defense attorney, someone to plead their case. It is someone who is righteous, someone who is without sin, who can then say, listen, Father, Damon Woods has sinned. Again. Okay? I am here to plead his case. But there's one more thing without which it all falls apart. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. One could argue that to have a defense attorney is great. And to have a righteous or just defense attorney, a sinless one, is great. But it's not enough. Because who is going to pay for what I've done? I have broken God's laws. Payment has to be made. Jesus is not only our righteous defense attorney, our advocate. He is not only the one who is without sin. He is the one who pays for our sins. He stands before the Father and says, Here is your son. He has sinned again. I will pay. I am paying for his or her sins. Why would he do that? And why would the judge, why would God the Father accept that? Love. So I said last week, Augustine, St. Augustine said, uh, this epistle, the theme, is love. And if we do not understand the love of God, then I would argue that none of this makes sense. We live in a transactional society. Facebook is all about transactions. And if we're not careful, we will think, oh, Jesus died, shed his blood, that pays for my sins. So he tells the Father, and the Father says, okay, I accept the payment, you're forgiven. And it completely ignores the reality of God's love. I mean, what is the motivation? If it's pure transaction, if it's just a contract, what's the motivation? It is because of God's love. And that verse that many of us learned in Sunday school, one of the first memory verses, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And then an amazing passage in Romans 5. You see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, for sinners. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not simply transaction. It's motivated by his love. And then in Ephesians 2, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. 
even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. We were dead, defeated by sin, tainted, corrupted by sin, and yet God loved us and sent his son, and now his son is the one who advocates for us. He is the one who stands by us. It is because of his atoning sacrifice that our sins have been forgiven. We're going to see this fleshed out as we go along through this epistle. But as I was going through this, I was reminded of an essay by C.S. Lewis called Modern Man and His Categories of Thought. And he argues that when the apostles, John is one of those apostles, when they preached the gospel in the first century, um, the people that they preached to had three things in common, whether they were Jews or proselytes, those who had been brought into the Jewish faith, or pagans. They all had three things in common. First of all, they believed in the supernatural. Secondly, they were conscious of sin and divine judgment. And that's why you have them running to the temple all the time to make these sacrifices. Even pagans had a sense that if you've done something wrong, if you've offended the gods, you better make it right. Okay? And thirdly, they believed that the world had once been better than it is now. The Jews believed in the fall, as recorded in Genesis. The Stoics believed in a golden age. And so all the stories about the heroes and all that, that we now call mythology, it was a sense that um, things, in fact, had been better. And now they're not. And there's a sense that something tragically has gone wrong. So as the apostles preached the gospel in the first century, they're dealing with these types of people. That's not what we find today. The majority of people do not believe in the supernatural. They do not believe in sin or divine judgment. They don't believe in a fall. If anything, it's the reverse. They believe that things were really, really bad and now they're going to get better and better and better until we sort of reach some type of nirvana or utopia. I mention this for two reasons. First of all, what we call good news may not be considered good news by others. Because for there to be good news, there has to be bad news. And the bad news is, in fact, that you are living in darkness. You are in sin. You are separated from God. You are a sinner. I mean, try beginning a conversation with those words. You are a sinner. I think you could say that a hundred or two hundred or three hundred years, a thousand years ago, people would know what you meant. I don't think that people do anymore. There's also a sense that um, there's nothing beyond us. There's no sense of transcendence, that there's a God who is beyond us. In Isaiah 57, for this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place. Yeah, I just don't think that computes with most people today. Man is the measure of all things. And so to speak of God's love, yeah, I just... We'll speak of love, 
as we get to define it, but to say that there is a transcendent God, this being who created the world and he loves us in spite of our sins, is simply something that people don't aspire to. And yet, and yet, I think deep down there is this sense that there's something greater than ourselves. Uh, Blaise Pascal, who lived in the 17th century, wrote about Montaigne, who lived in the 16th century. Pascal said about Montaigne that he was cheating. He said he was cheating. Because to most humans, curiosity about higher things comes naturally. As human beings, we just have this innate sense that there is something greater than ourselves. To be indifferent to that, you have to learn. You have to learn to be indifferent to transcendence. The modern world has learned. We have a PhD in indifference to the things of God. We have, in fact, become indifferent to these realities. And yet, again, there is this, this sense of, of longing, of, of sort of reaching out. In a novel called Nothing to be Frightened of by Julian Barnes, it's a memoir on mortality. The first sentence is, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. There is this sense that, yeah, I, 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 the modern world has made us indifferent, has made us cold to these things. And yet deep down there is a sense, because we're made in the image of God, that there's something greater than ourselves. The second reason that I mention all of this is because even though we may believe what John writes here, um, in many ways we're much more modern than we care to admit. I think we have a very casual view of sin. We see it as just a, you know, a, a habit or a character. We might even call it a character flaw, but we wouldn't say that's sin. We wouldn't say we've sinned. And I think we need to take to heart the things that John says here in our passage today. One more thing, and then I will stop. I think one of the reasons that some people leave the Christian faith, or they leave the church at least, is because they are tempted to say that something doesn't make sense because they don't want to be associated with the people who believe it. I hope that confutes. They, in fact, say, I, I, I don't want to walk in that way. I don't want to say I believe those things because I don't like the people who walk in that way and who believe those things. Um, there's more to the truth than information. There's more to the truth than mere belief. There is to be fellowship. Enlightenment is communal, not individual. We think of it quite the reverse, that someone has a spark of genius. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. It's not if I walk in the light and I get all this insight and I'm going to stay away from all you people. No. As a people of God, the truth is the truth. It is to be lived out. It is to be shared. We are the family of God. Lonnie wrote last week in the prayer list that she sent out, we are a family. 
And as a family, we are to walk in the light. We are to have fellowship with one another. And not somehow in a very American individualistic way say, no, no, it's just between me and God. God and I are on the same page and and about the rest of you people. No, no, no. We are to walk in the light together. Let's pray together. Our Father, we would say, and we have in the prayer of confession, that we have sinned. Yet, I, I don't know that we really take that seriously. It seems to be mere words. We seem to take pride in the knowledge that we have, forgetting that whatever knowledge we have has come from you. We live in a society that has become indifferent almost immune to you and the reality of your transcendence. And yet there is a hungering, a thirsting. May we as your people, as a people, as a family, together walk in the light, live the truth, confessing our sins and knowing that it all comes because of your love. And in doing so, may we be a light to the world around us. May they come to see the truth of who Jesus is. May they come to see their own sins, their need of a Savior, and look to you. To understand these things, to comprehend them on our own, we cannot. So we look to you for your Spirit. May he give us understanding. And may we not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. I thank you for bringing us together. May your spirit go with us as we leave this place. May we have a sense of your presence as we walk through the world in this week. We pray for Gia as she travels this week, that you would keep her safe and bring her back to us safely. Thank you for loving us. You loved us even when we did not love you. Thank you. I pray in Jesus' name.